Let's pray together. Father in heaven, you alone are holy. There is none beside you. And Lord, we ask that you meet with us here today. We don't take for granted that you would be, but Lord, may we display the attitude and your praise and all that is necessary for you to be here with your people. Lord, we ask that you bless our time together in your word. Lord, remind us why we are here, why it is good to be in the house of the Lord. What a privilege it is to gather as brothers and sisters in Christ. But Lord, most importantly, even from the passage of Scripture that we studied today and from the song we just sang, even in the depths of your suffering, Lord, your glory shone through. Lord, may we see your glory to behold it as people have over the years. But Lord, would you make it fresh again in the middle of a year that seems to have gone so wrong. Lord, display your glory for us here in this room, together as a church, with our Bibles open in our laps on another Sunday. Lord, do it again. And we thank you again, expecting great things. We ask this in the strong name of Jesus Christ. Amen. Well, it's my privilege to welcome you uh, in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ and see your faces and to welcome those that are gathering uh, by our live stream where, wherever you may be. We're going to pick up where we left off last time in John's Gospel. So if I could ask you to turn there. This is John chapter 13. And we studied uh, the portion having to do with the, the washing of, of feet by Jesus. He washed his disciples' feet. That was the first 20 verses of chapter 13. And we've got three paragraphs left. Let me read those to you. We'll read them each word and then we'll go back through them and most of them we'll read again. Some of this is familiar to us, not as much as the first part of the chapter, um, but let's begin reading in verse 21. This is John's Gospel, chapter 13. After saying these things, Jesus was troubled in his spirit and testified, truly, truly, I say to you, one of you will betray me. The disciples looked at one another, uncertain of whom he spoke. One of his disciples, whom Jesus loved, was reclining at table at Jesus' side. So Simon Peter motioned to him to ask Jesus of whom he was speaking. So that disciple, leaning back against Jesus, said to him, Lord, who is it? Jesus answered, it is he whom I will give this morsel of bread when I have dipped it. So when he had dipped the morsel, he gave it to Judas, the son of Simon Iscariot. Then after he had taken the morsel, Satan entered into him. Jesus said to him, what you're going to do, do quickly. 
No one at the table knew why he said this to him. Some thought because Judas had the money back, Jesus was telling him, buy what we need for the feast. Or that he should give something to the poor. So after receiving the morsel of bread, he immediately went out and it was night. Verse 31. When he had gone out, Jesus said, Now is the Son of Man glorified, and God is glorified in him. If God is glorified in him, God will also glorify him in himself and glorify him at once. Little children, yet a little while I am with you. You will seek me, and just as I told the Jews, so now I also say to you, Where I am going, you cannot come. A new commandment I give to you, that you love one another, just as I have loved you, you also are to love one another. By this, all people will know that you are my disciples, if you love one another. And then verse 36, Simon Peter said to him, Lord, where are you going? Jesus answered him, where I'm going, you cannot follow me now, but you will follow me afterward. Peter said to him, Lord, why can I not follow you now? I will lay down my life for you. Jesus answered, will you lay down your life for me? Truly, truly, I say to you, the rooster will not crow till you have denied me three times. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pause once again, asking for help. And we'll begin to study. Father in heaven, Lord, we ask for your help to understand what is truly a dramatic piece of Scripture from the record of the disciple whom you loved, reporting to us what he saw that very night. Lord, we ask that you help us understand it, but we also ask that you help us obey what's there, especially the command to love others like you loved us. And the warning that comes along with the painful news Peter had to hear. Lord, thank you for this time. Bless it. Use it. Make us good students. Be our teacher. We ask this in your name. Amen. Well, as already mentioned, this last uh, three paragraphs of this 13th chapter uh, break apart easy enough to organize the contents of what we have left. They begin with that statement, after these things, after the, the foot washing part of the chapter, these things occurred. And basically we've got Christ's announcement to the disciples, which was not new news. They'd heard it a year earlier, but one of you will deny me. And then that second of the three paragraphs has to do with a new commandment, which also isn't necessarily new. It's just a new way of looking at an old commandment. And then finally, the, the warning of Peter's denial in just a few hours from the point where we read this. So this is what we've got. This is what we'll look at. The, the first paragraph will help us understand the second two. And the second two is where we'll make some application at least look at it as to what it says to us uh, the first paragraph not at all being one of those go thou and do likewise uh, passages 
It has to do with Judas. So let's look at that first. The dismissal of Judas from the other 11. Judas is a, is a mysterious figure in the New Testament. He's, he, he, he's one that at least you would think that if you know your Bibles at all, you know who Judas is. But Judas leaves more questions uh, than he answers at least for the inquiring mind that wants to know. We should never worry too much about that, that there's just not enough there. There is, of course, enough there. This is God's Word. We know what we need to know about Judas. We might not know what we want to know. And that's, of course, because our curious mind is always drawn to the, the darkness. For some reason, we always want to look. Uh, even past the the boundary of Christ's warning, it seems. We still want to know. We want to look. But for reasons God knows and He's not telling, there's only a certain amount of information given to us about who Judas is and the the actual figure that, that he... the role that he occupies... Just so we cover all the ground, the Scripture does make at least three plain statements about Judas. Two of them are from this Gospel and from the lips of Jesus, and then we'll add one from the book of Acts. But in John six seventy, we already covered this. But Jesus answered them, Did I not choose you, the twelve? Jesus is asking this question mark there. Didn't I choose you? And then goes on to say, And yet one of you is a devil. That God chose them the way they are, knowing this. John gives us one of his editorial comments in this verse. Verse 71, he spoke of Judas, the son of Simon Iscariot, for he, one of the twelve, was going to betray him. So from that passage we know that Jesus chose them, knowing that one of them was going to betray him and describes him as a devil. Then John seventeen twelve. we haven't gotten there yet. Um, but this is Christ's high priestly prayer, and he's praying this. This is looking in on Jesus' prayer to his Father. He says, While I was with them, I kept them in your name, which you have given me. I have guarded them. He's referring to the disciples. And not one of them has been lost except the son of destruction, that the Scripture might be fulfilled. So he's, he's, not only is he a devil, but he's the son of destruction. And this is going to take place in fulfillment of Scripture. And then in Acts one twenty four, and this is when the eleven are replacing Judas as the twelfth man. Uh, after death and burial of Jesus. Uh, we see here that while they're praying... And they prayed and said, You, Lord, who know the hearts of all, show which one of these two you have chosen. They had two options. We're using lots to figure that out. Verse 25. To take the place in his ministry and apostleship from which Judas turned aside to go to his own place. We know that Judas went out and hung himself. And then there's that gruesome passage that talks about how he, he fell from that position and, and when he hit the ground he burst open as the scripture tells us and the 
the field. Went to his own place is probably the, the most mysterious of these three places. And that's because of the conjecture that people want to, is this referring to hell? Most of the scholars believe that. But to describe hell as his own place really makes things interesting. So is Judas the devil himself or is he just possessed by the devil himself? Which is what we just read in chapter 13 after he takes the piece of bread. All these things said, lots of questions. But enough to know that this is in accordance to scripture. Understood by Jesus and carried out by the devil. Jesus' emphatic statement as the chapters open, or the paragraph rather, could not be misunderstood. There's no way no one at the table thought, okay, um, sounds like you just said one of us was going to betray you. Now, is, is, that, is that what you're saying? No, there was an embarrassing, awkward silence looking at the other gospel writers, and then they began to ask, is this me? Uh, such that they couldn't, for the life of them, understand who would do that. So they begin to ask if it's something that they themselves could be guilty of. Jesus had been talking about this for about a year. That that goes back to John chapter 6. But he now knows that the time has come where it's actually going to be a reality says that Jesus was troubled in his spirit. We've seen that before at the grave of Lazarus. He was troubled in his spirit. When the Greeks came to him and signaled that non-Jews are looking for Jesus, this, this is ushering in the end. His hour is approaching very quickly. And now, hours away from his betrayal, same thing. And I suppose having written this, John is trying to help us understand that even though Jesus seems to be in quite control of what's going on, it's not without his being bothered in his spirit by what's happening. You can't understand the human part of Jesus if you don't know that this is troubling. And that's not even near the word for it. So look at verse uh, 23. One of the disciples, and it's almost like you have to look at these line by line to get the play by play as to how this all works. This is John, the author of what we're reading, the one whom Jesus loved. Reclining at table, Jesus sighed. Simon Peter motions, asks who it is, uh, and trying to understand how this worked, there's really no way we would know who's sitting where. But it makes the most sense that John's on one side of Jesus and Judas is on the other, likely in the position of regard or honor. Um, Peter somehow somewhere where John can see him, and he somehow signals to him, oh, who is it? And since John is closest to Jesus, he can ask it without everybody else necessarily knowing what's going on. Look at verse 26. Jesus answered, and this is to John, because Peter asked him to do it. 
It is he whom I will give this morsel of bread when I have dipped it. So when he dipped it, gave it to Judas, son of Simon Iscariot. Then after he'd taken it, Satan enters him. Jesus says, do it quickly. So the way Jesus discloses to John, just to John, and John's writing much later when he writes this down. It's interesting that John's the only one that knows everybody else doesn't. And if, if, you, if you're looking at this in your mind as the way the Last Supper painting looks, it won't make sense to you. And that's not the way they would do things. They didn't have a table that they sat at. They reclined on their arm. It wouldn't have worked well for me. I'm left-handed. And they would lean on their left and use their right hand to eat. And people would be around the table that way. So John is able to lean back to say something to Jesus. Where the rest of the table might not necessarily be privy to it. And then Jesus is able easily to take what he's going to give to Judas and hand it right over. That is what most think took place. And giving the bread uh, to Judas was probably interpreted by everybody else as uh, a mark of honor. He's in the honored position. And that's usually the that's not the way our culture worked. It'd almost be like a toast or something, I guess, with, with the way we do things. But to hand that to him probably did more to cross Judas off the list of who might betray him than to mark him as the one who would do that. And that's only a stronger case when everybody has no idea why he gets up and leaves. But that's likely what, what is going on. Seems to have been Jesus' final appeal to Judas. The last opportunity to change his mind. I don't know if you've imagined your way through the interpersonal relationships between Judas and John and Peter and the whole group. Some commentators have said that perhaps Judas and Jesus were a lot closer than any of the gospel writers could bear to say. But none of them, none of them suspected him of it. Which is intriguing. We also hear that Satan mentioned only by name right here in John's Gospel, enters Judas after taking the bread. So if that was the final line in the sand, Judas steps over it. Now if Judas steps over it, you say, well, how does the devil enter a Judas? By invitation, seems like. And by the time you get to verse 28... No one at the table knew why he said this to him. Said what? What you are going to do, do quickly. No reason to drag your feet. Get busy. Now, John gives us two options of assumptions that the, the audience in the room watching Judas leave thought verse 29 some thought that because judas had the money bag uh, go buy what you need for the feast or that he should give something to the poor so they're not suspecting anything verse 30 after receiving the morsel of bread immediately went out 
And John tells us, and it was night. Now, no one in the room would see Judas again until late that night, perhaps even early morning. And that would be Judas leading a detachment of soldiers to the location in the Garden of Gethsemane where Jesus was praying and many of his men were, were sleeping. Um, and if you're thinking in your mind how this must have looked as being part of it, Judas is gone. Now Jesus can get on with that goodbye that he seemed to set up with the foot washing and will carry us through chapter 14, 15, 16, and 17. All of that is written as to what happens between now and the Garden of Gethsemane. Judas is gone. He gets busy teaching his disciples with the time that they have. Now, this is where, if you like to use your imagination in your understanding and reading of God's Word, John makes it... uh, very easy to think in big terms. He spent a good bit of time in the beginning of the book talking about light. Do you remember? In the first chapter, the light has come and the darkness comprehended it not. Described himself as the, the light of the world. Talked about having time to work while it is light, but the darkness is coming. Judas has just separated himself from the light of the world. And I'm sure that when this whole arrangement began, it was daylight. But John, observant as he is, when that door opens, Judas walks into the darkness and away from Jesus. And by the time he's done, he'll go to his own place. But the themes of darkness and light uh, couldn't be more thematic. So let's look at this new commandment. This begins in verse 31. So the paragraph changes when he had gone out. This is what Jesus says. Now the Son of Man is glorified, and God is glorified in him. If God is glorified in him, God will also glorify him in himself and glorify him at once. Five uses of the word glorify. Similar to what David had read before we sang, Holy, Holy, Holy. And what's interesting here, as a prelude to this discussion of where I am, you cannot come. He'd already told them that before. Then the new commandment of loving one another like he loves them. Judas has just gone. The door is shut. The actual machinery of the arrest, the trial, the execution has been set into motion. The hour has truly come. No more work is done. Everything now exists in that now that Jesus had been talking about. But as the exit of the one paragraph is with Judas leaving and the door shut, this next paragraph begins from the viewpoint of Jesus' glory. Five times. So here again, what the world would consider the beginning of Jesus' end in total failure, from heaven's perspective, is seen as his finest hour. When does Jesus receive glory? 
when the crown's placed on his head? Of course. But he's telling us, watch. You want to see the glory of God? You look at it in his lowest point. Betrayed by his friend that no one even recognizes. Inhabited by the devil himself. Darkness over the whole idea. This is where God's glory is described by John. And then it's in this paragraph we're given the idea of this new commandment. Carson tells us the new commandment is simple enough for a toddler to memorize, profound enough that even the most mature believers are repeatedly embarrassed at how poorly they comprehend it and put it into practice. I say he's correct. The new commandment's not new because nothing like it's ever been said before. That's not it. If you're making notes, write these things down and we'll... we'll amplify them this commandment of love was not new in fact it was old as old as the law of Moses but the difference is two things there's a new object and there's a new measure let me explain what I mean by that you always need an object of your love right a heart full of love and nothing to love doesn't make sense love needs an object and then there's also measure. You ever play this little game with your kids? How much does daddy love you? you know, this much is usually measured by how far you can stretch your arms. You need something to measure that love with. Well, that's what's new between the new commandment and the old commandment from the Old Testament. The new object of love was one another. That hadn't been said yet. In the old, it was love your neighbor. And you all remember this, right? How good were the Jews at loving their neighbors? So good that Jesus had to hit them between the eyes with the Good Samaritan parable, right? The lawyer stood up willing to justify himself. He wanted to know who was his neighbor. If he could figure that out, then he could limit his, his, his love exercises by just loving the neighbors and crossing the others off the list. So he could justify loving who he wanted to love and hating who he wanted to love and using the Bible in order to do it, right? Well, Jesus says that's not going to work. You're, you're going to, it's, mo, it's much more important for you to, to be neighbor to someone than figure out who's neighbor to you or who's your neighbor. That was the story of the Good Samaritan who was neighbor when no one thought he should be. So that's the old commandment, but now the new object is one another. And that's, that's the family of God. This is brothers and sisters, and he's talking to his disciples here. I want you to add loving your neighbor, which you haven't done well at all. Add to that loving each other. It's not that I want you to love your neighbor less and love your brothers and sisters in Christ more. It's love them both more. And it sounds like he's just adding to the list, but hang on. Love your brothers and sisters in Christ. And it's always good to help us think through things, to try to put ourselves in the shoes of who's listening to this when it was said the first time. But you've got to understand that Jesus is talking to Jewish people, and Jewish people have trouble with other people. Um... More so maybe than others. And the world they lived in may have looked a lot like ours. But I still think it was worse. Um, 
their world was divided. You've got masters and slaves. You've got Jews hating Gentiles. You've got Romans ruling everyone. You've got Greeks looking at the Jews as barbarians. And you've got this vast chasm between men and women. Women were treated like property. Only until Jesus taught us through the New Testament, through his disciples, did the world figure out how you're supposed to treat women. So the world he's saying this into, love like I love you, it's going to be hard for them to think about this. But think of it this way. If we were to fast forward into the book of Acts, it was as a band of brothers and sisters that the church turned the world upside down. Right? It was Peter going to the Jews and Paul going to the Gentiles. And before it's all over, it's all so mixed up and multicolored and multi-ethnic and multi-generational, multi-just about everything. And it was as a band of loving brothers and sisters that the good news of the gospel of Jesus Christ was brought over oceans by the church. So it worked in the first century, and it'll work now. The world will notice a group of people that actually really love one another, and they'll want what they see. It's always worked that way, which makes me nervous because I don't think that's what I see. <laughs> in our country, supposed to be one nation under God, and I'm worried about the church. Just as the way it's... It, it's, it's being asked to splinter and divide and look at things in so many different angles. This new command couldn't be any more relevant, I'm convinced. I mean, that's basically the way we work, isn't it? If we're left to ourselves. Don't celebrities marry celebrities? Don't athletes party with athletes? Don't doctors hang out with doctors? And the middle class usually live next to the middle class. Don't we usually seek our own and pile up in groups of us and look from that position at others? It's just the way it all works. But when Jesus comes, all that changes. It acts as the, the proof of it. So the more we love like Jesus, the more diverse the body actually becomes. This is what Jesus is telling them is going to be the new standard of the church. Guys, I'm headed for a cross hours from now. You need to understand the very foundation of your getting on together for the next two millennia is going to be based on how you love one another or you'll destroy one another. But here's where it really, really gets radical. If, if that's not a radical statement that could get you in trouble, what he says next certainly is. And this is the measure of this love. How, how much should you love one another as I have loved you? So you tell me. This, this, is, this is a pop quiz. Is that radical? Okay, what is radical? Radical is something deviating from Normal And what the normal was in the Old Testament was love your neighbor as yourself. How many of you would say that it is admittedly difficult to love anyone like I love myself? Okay, 
Scratch that. We're going to improve on it. Love someone else like Jesus loves you. So that's impossible. Oh, yes. Without the Holy Spirit, quite impossible. But that's the standard. That's what He wants. I want you to love them like I love you. And how does Jesus love us? Sacrificially. Yeah, this is radical. If anybody in the room is paying attention, they're thinking, well, thanks for telling us something we'll never be able to do. But they were. And that's how we, living in the uttermost parts of the world, I'd call that Fuquay Arena, have this book here by 12 men. One was a devil replaced by another who wrote this New Testament and turned the world upside down. Now, just to make sure we know the context from which we're reading, this new commandment, love each other the way I loved you, is just been said from the mouth of the man who washed the feet of the devil that betrayed him. Think about that. Could you do that? Do you think the disciples would know if there was something between Jesus and Judas? They knew nothing. They had no idea who the betrayer was based on the way Jesus treated him. So, no one can say later, oh yeah, love everybody like Jesus does. You saw what happened to that Judas fellow, right? No, he loved him the same as the rest, knowing what was coming. The whole idea of turning the other cheek, love those who hate you. Whole new definition. And Jesus follows by saying this, By this all people will know that you are my disciples, if you have love for one another. That's the litmus test. They'll know whether you're a real Christian or a faker. Based on whether or not you actually love people like I've told you to. Possibly the greatest gift that the body of Christ could ever give the world is to love one another. If we do, those on the outside will want to learn about what's on the inside. And here again, if not to state the obvious, do you not think that this year has taken the idea that everybody might just hate everybody through the roof? Everybody's fussing with everybody. You want to know how to radically change the world? How about that? them see you love? Um, how is it said? Speaking the truth in love? I think we're good on the truth now. People have, have, have used their time to go back and polish up on the truth. Load their, their weapons, get on social media, and take people's heads off in the name of Jesus. Where's the love? If there's no love, they're not listening. They might even fire back with more ammo than you've got. What have, you, what, what, what have we done? You've got to show some love for the truth to actually be heard. Now, if there's such a thing as love without truth, that's not really love at all. We know this. But Jesus is our example. And he's washed the feet of his enemy. 
He's not compromising on the truth. Let's look at Peter's denial before we run out of time. Verse 36, Simon Peter said to him, Lord, where are you going? Jesus answered, where I'm going, you cannot come. You will afterward. Peter said, why can I not follow you now? I'll lay down my life. Jesus gives it back to him. Will you? And then he tells him that he's going to deny him three times. Now, back from verse 33, where Jesus tells them he's going away and that he told the Jews that, Peter's coming back to that thought. And John's using Simon Peter's full name here. And uh, we're not told why he does, but it seems when the drama is heightened, John is more specific even with proper names and I don't know if you ever remember getting called by your middle name right when mom needed your attention better than the last time she just used your first name. I think John is writing this with a broken heart every time he thinks back. that This is Peter, the man that he would spend large majority of the book of Acts with. Peter's going to have to be told the future here. There's a reason why we don't have access to the future. It would, it would ruin us. Peter's got to learn a lesson that's not going to be complete until he's sitting on the shore with Jesus after his resurrection over a fish breakfast. This is, about as, this is the beginning of what's going to be the worst Peter's ever heard. And... John describes it by saying Peter had interrupted the conversation on the new commandment and said, okay, you said you were leaving. Why can't we go with you? So we know where his heart is. And he probably speaks for the room. Bad time to to do a lesson. Their, Their minds are worried about what just took place. He says, where are you going? You can't follow me. So that's a repetition for the third time. But you will follow afterward. Let's not forget that. He will follow, just not now. Peter said to him, he wants to know, why can't I follow you now? He's not worried about later. He wants to know about now. And will lay down my life for you. So Peter appears astounded. His pride in his discipleship is wounded. When he's told he can't follow. And again, uh, in Peter's style, no language is too forceful to convince Jesus that he means what he says. And he throws down that he's ready to lay down his life for Jesus. And here's where a good Bible student or one who's watched the series many times would say, doesn't he know what he sounds like? Who's laying down whose life for whom? Jesus had already told them, I'm going to lay down my life for you. They don't get it. They don't understand it. And here's Peter saying, no, I'm going to do that for you. Who's the one paying for the sins? Who's the Lamb of God to take away the sins of the world, which requires blood sacrifice? It's Jesus, not Peter. So Peter's mixed up. He's emotional. And... uh, I don't know that it, he's trying to protect Jesus from himself. His brothers tried to do that. Uh, or does he not know that to prevent Jesus from doing this would prevent him from following the path his father had given him to do and would be disobedience? I don't think he's thinking that stuff at this moment. I think there's both truth and error in what he's saying, and it's commendable. It's where we would have been. 
But yes, he has guts. So what he says about laying down his life is not hollow. He's going to pick up a sword and cut off the ear of Malchus. And don't think that he wasn't trying to cut off his head. It's probably just a dodge. Right? But his readiness to die for Jesus isn't quite what he thinks it is. Not at this moment. The difficulty is this. He didn't know himself. And he didn't understand the weakness of his own nature. He's going to find that out very soon. Jesus gives Peter's words right back to him, along with a horrifying look just around the corner. And it's introduced with the solemn, truly, truly, or verily, verily. To make it clear, it was no casual remark and made in full awareness of its gravity. You will deny me three times before morning. So, it's not for lack of courage. But because he's unwilling and powerless to be counted as a disciple of the Lord who's on his way to a cross. He's going to find out he doesn't have those guts. Not yet. He will die on a cross himself. But again, that's later. Jesus has been saying this is later. Carson says, sadly, good intentions in a secure room after good food are far less attractive in a darkened garden with a hostile mob. Sitting there with the disciples, he did not foresee a mob and a garden. And so often we think we stand not having taken heed lest we fall. But let me, let me pull all this together. I want to show you one more thing. Because at this point in his pilgrimage, and Peter has somewhat of a pilgrimage, when you say? We do too. Peter's intentions and self-assessment vastly outstrip his strength here in John 13. When we see Peter in Acts, it's a different Peter. But what I want you to see before we close this is the difference between Peter in Acts and Peter in John and what might be almost 30 years worth of a track record. But it's mentioned right here. If you look, Simon Peter said unto him, Lord, where are you going? Jesus answered, where I'm going, you cannot follow me now. But you will follow afterward. And then you have this horrifying gut check of a prophecy that's only going to take hours to reveal itself. You will deny me three times before the rooster crows. And that's not even morning. That, that was still in the watches of the night. So here's what I want you to see. The you will deny me three times does not undo the you will follow me afterward. Aren't you glad for that? And isn't that really what following Jesus is all about? That he's going to give you the strength to follow him, not in your power, but in his down a road that he's already been down and cleared the way. 
You see, Peter got it switched. I'll lay down my life for you. Where Jesus has to say, I'll need to do that first. Then you can lay down your life for me. But without me laying down my life for you, there's no such thing as you laying down your life for me. You'll lay it down all right in service, servitude, maybe, maybe your physical death for Peter, for all of them except John, the case was true. But the, the denying three times did not undo, you will follow me later. Well, I'm glad for that because there's a lot of times I've messed up wondering, is this the end? It's not the end. Jesus made sure that the end was sure. That, that's what's said throughout the New Testament. Now, unto him who is able to keep you from falling and to present you blameless before his presence with great joy. That's Jude 24 and 5. You won't lay down your life until after I lay down mine. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we thank you for the truth of your word. And we thank you for the, the tender care that you showed not only Peter, who would be instrumental in changing and turning that world upside down, of which we benefit greatly. But with giving Judas the opportunity to change his mind. And Lord, we thank you for, in spite of the mistakes, even total failures on our part, you give us the grace to follow you down a road that you've been down already. Thank you for grace, for forgiveness of sins. Thank you for the truth of your word. Lord, I ask if there's someone here who is hearing these things, they're new to them. Lord, would you open to them the, the things that are yet to be understood. And Lord, save them for yourself to be your possession. Lord, forgive us our sins. And Lord, give us what we need to tell others the truth that we know that you gave us. Thank you for time together in your house today. And Lord, as we sing and as we depart, be glorified and be praised. We ask all this in your precious name. Amen.